Welcome to the Jesus Said Love podcast. This is a space where we talk about what it means to awaken hope and empower change. Listen, for over a decade, Em and I have been fostering relationships with men and women who've been impacted by the commercial sex industry. And it's through those relationships that Jesus Said Love was born. We figured it was time to talk about what this ministry has taught us and is still teaching us along the way. I promise it's going to be a place of conversation and story. And we hope you learn something new. Maybe you see something in a new way. Fun fact, you're going to hear music because Brett and I are musicians. Yep. We can't just talk. Nope. we got to sing and play too. We do. Here's the deal, guys. Our hope is that as you hear these stories, that you'll tap into your own story and that you'll be encouraged to live and love well like Jesus. Well, hello there, Emily. Hey. Guess what? What? I feel like a six-year-old. Why is that? I have an ear infection. Oh, yes. I have an ear infection because... We kind of have two ear infections. I do. I have an... Um, what is it? A mi- uh, outer and a middle. Yes. Which yep. basically means I can't touch my ear or I can't hear out of it. It's like swimmer's ear mm-hmm. and then then the stopped up is the middle ear. That, yeah. Yeah. And I think the problem I'm having is we, you and I can't come to an agreement on from whence I got this ear infection. I don't Because care. you think it was the beach and I think it was going down the slide. I mean, that slide was pretty powerful. It probably lodged and you went head first. I, I did. And it was <laughs> worth every bit of it in the midst of this pandemic lifestyle we live in. Yeah. It's just different. So on the podcast today, I'm really excited because we have on the show, Kristen Howerton, who is, let me just tell you, she is a self-described catastrophizer. Okay. Oh, what is that? Well, somebody who just catastrophizes. It's just, she just lives in complete catastrophe at all times. She, well, she doesn't live in that, but she creates she can. catastrophe for others. She, she, <laughs> I don't think so. We should have asked her that. <laughs> um, no, she she just, it's easy for her to get to, like the whole world's coming to an end, which actually she says, if you follow her, like worked out good because it kind of, we're kind of living in <laughs> revelation right now, apocalyptic. Mad um, Max. <laughs> so, and then she just also, so she's a self-described catastrophizer and calls herself a lapsed psychotherapist, which is really funny. She's the author of a new book, Rage Against the Minivan, which is also the name of her 10-year-old uh blog that she's had. Um, Kristen adopted two black sons, and she also has two biological white daughters. And in this book, she kind of uses humor and just her authentic voice to discuss kind of coming to terms with the issues of her own white privilege and raising her black sons and her white daughters together in this family. Um, She also wrote a bonus chapter, which is really fun. After the book came out, she wrote this bonus chapter called Parenting During a Pandemic, which is so cool because I genuinely was like trying to find someone to do a show called Parenting in a Pandemic. And then I found Kristen. It was... It was amazing. I follow a lot of people that that she talks to, and and she popped up on my Instagram, and I'm so thankful that she's joining us on the podcast. So we're just excited to know more about her journey, to learn from her authentic voice, and hopefully that you as a parent, as you are navigating so many crises and multiple pandemics in this world right now, that you can find a little bit of hope awakened. And you know, I, I want to commend you on um, on securing her as a guest, babe. I mean, she's like our first blue check mark. She is. She's got the blue check. She's mark, got the blue check she? mark. I keep trying to get the blue check mark, and they keep sending it back to me. Of you're just not good enough for a blue check mark. I think you have to have a lot of followers for well, a blue check I have mark. Have plenty, I think. But I don't apparently, know. Instagram doesn't. But anyway, so. she has a blue check mark <laughs> by her name. So the mere fact that you reached out to her yeah, she and was. she responded, I think, is really cool it's, about her. It is cool. It is very cool about her. And it's also like we're all um, still kind of at home. <laughs> and this is a great time if you have a podcast to, to talk reach to, people out, with talk. Blue, to people with blue check marks. Yes, just do it because it's a great way to have so many. Com- that's kind of one of the beautiful gifts of this uh, sheltering in place right now. So without further ado, let's listen to our interview with Kristen Howerton, author of Rage Against the Minivan. Okay, so Kristen Howerton, welcome to the Jesus I Love podcast. We are so excited to have you here. Well, I'm excited to chat with you guys. 
And I, we were just talking beforehand. I'm so thankful that you popped up on our or my Instagram feed, my personal Instagram feed, because we were literally talking about how we needed someone to cover the topic of parenting in a pandemic. And you, did you write a chapter <laughs> about this? I did. Well, you know, it's funny because I had written a a book about parenting and little did we know as I was writing that book that when it would release, we'd be in the middle of a pandemic. So when all of that happened, I did write a bonus chapter for the book that was just specifically about all of those issues, which, you know, I mean, as we know, are changing every day. Yeah. Like even in the midst of y'all talking right now, our doorbell just rang our video doorbell uh-huh. and apparently our kids just ordered lunch, you know, favor sure. to just come to the house Yeah, oh, because that's my gosh, what that's just what you do when you, when you're a teenager that's in pandemic. Hilarious. Oh, God. That's God, hilarious. They're going to get it when we get home. Well, thank God though. Like, <laughs> thank God for DoorDash or our kids are fed. <laughs> No kidding. Yeah, here's your five dollars, your five dollar Chick Fil A meal. That'll be eighteen dollars, oh, please. Gosh, can't do it every time. Every time. Oh my gosh. Well, I've got my book ordered. I have not read it yet, so just want to be totally transparent about that. Um, I, my first question is, like, you wrote a book and you're doing a book launch in the midst of sheltering in place. So, what in the world is it like to launch a book into the world right now? It's a little different than I expected. I mean, probably the biggest um, shift I had to make was, you know, normally when you re- when you record an audiobook, you would go into a studio and you would have a director there and you would spend several days in a nice studio. And instead, I recorded the entire audiobook in my bedroom, <laughs> like in a fort made of soundproofing blankets. Like I nice. seriously, it looked like I had built myself a blanket fort. So yeah, that, and then, you know, I had speaking engagements and, Mm -hmm. you know, things planned and instead it's just all happening from home. So I just kind of pivoted. I've been doing a lot of author conversations on my Instagram page. I love those by the way. Yeah. It's been really fun. I've gotten to chat with authors I know and then authors that I just admire. Like it's been really fun. Like I got to talk with our Eric Thomas, who I adore Mm -hmm. and Glennon Melton and Melanie Shankle and just a whole number of authors that I like, you know, that I probably wouldn't have had that opportunity otherwise. So that was kind of fun. Kind of the bonus is we do have this crazy amount of time in some ways that gives us like a space to lean into that we haven't had before. You know, I I mean, that's the kind of the weird thing. It's like you are connecting with so many people that maybe you didn't. I don't know. It's it seems really. It's almost like you wouldn't even have the opportunity to to connect with certain people, just given their status or what they do for a living or whatever. But this social media is like made us all. It's how it's the only yeah. It's the only way that we are connecting right now in a in a way, and that's also yeah. kind of the catch 22 of this pandemic is like we were all trying to limit Isn't it <laughs> we were trying to yeah. limit all this technology and now it's like oh this is all you have right now to connect with oh it's crazy i so, know i feel that i feel that so much and it's like it, i feel so conflicted because i mean thank god we have it to stay connected and you know what would life be like if we didn't have the internet you know and that ability to connect with friends but at the same time like I'm also just fatigued by all of it. Exactly. You know, it, it definitely feels like we're like living out the movie Wally right. <laughs> in yeah, a way. Yeah. Right. Um, so your your new book, Rage Against the Minivan. First of all, when I saw the cover, at first I thought it was Rage Against the Machine, and I was having a little bit of like Gen <laughs> X like excitement about that. I was like, wait, what? <laughs> Rage Against the Machine is a book uh. now. Um, and so it's Rage Against the Minivan, and that was the name of your blog, as I understand it. And now it's a book. So tell us about the book and really why you're excited for us to read it. Yeah, so I wrote a blog for 10 years called Rage Against the Minivan, and that was just a little bit of a joke. You know, it was kind of a nod to like, I don't really want to be riding in this minivan. I don't really want to be the, you know, the faceless, personality-less soccer mom that I think, you know, 
some of us think sits behind the wheel of the minivan. You know, it was like my fist up wanting to like maintain my own sense of identity. Mm -hmm. Um, So I had that blog for about 10 years and, you know, from time to time people would be like, you should write a book. And I'd be like, that sounds really hard. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if I want to do that. Uh, But then I finally did feel like I, you know, I had just gotten enough perspective from parenting that I felt like I had something to say beyond putting a book together of blog posts or something. Like I really wanted, if I ever wrote a book, I wanted to have a message and I wanted mm-hmm. it to be, you know, it's its own thing set apart from the blog. And so, you know, ultimately I felt like what I wanted to share was just my journey of learning how to let go of outcomes as a mom, kind of learning how to live with imperfection, mm. um, resettling my expectations, both around myself and of my children, and coming to peace with just being kind of a B-plus okay family, which I think there's a lot of beauty in, you know? There is so much beauty in that, and it is a message of complete freedom, but also that is that is a stranger to our culture. I mean, I think that message is one that's real, like narrow and and kind of lost amidst everything else we're supposed all the supposed to be doings, you know. And some of that, yeah. some of that of our own doing, but then some of like this weird American way that we've we've all kind of been duped into thinking is the best. That's right. And I, you know, I talk about that in my book that it's like, we're, we're getting messages from all sides, you know, we're getting messages from our society and our society is telling us, well, you you know, in addition to being an amazing homemaker, you should also probably be an entrepreneur (laughs) or, you know, working mom and, and have a business. And then in addition to that, you should make sure that like your body's super fit. So you're working out all the time. And then you should make sure that you're serving healthy foods and maybe they're cut up in puzzle shapes and, you know, (laughs) And then if you are a Christian, we get even more messaging around what that looks like, right? That you should be very involved in volunteering at the church or that you should be the Proverbs 31 woman. And then everyone has their own take on what that actually means. That Mm -hmm. isn't always steeped in the actual scriptures. And, you know, so there's, I just think women, we are living in this weird sandwich generation between like, you know, the feminist movement and then figuring out the fact that the the ability to choose all of these things doesn't mean we can do it all Absolutely. right like we can't actually yeah we can't actually have it all we we can do some of it and we can pick like all of it's available to us um but we ha- we have to choose we have to opt into some of it and opt out of some of it or we'll just go insane so as i think think about that it has become really apparent during this time that we're living in that those messages that we've all, like as women or as families or whatever family looks like for your family, um, then to have to go inward into like shelter in place. And so we've taken now like all of those messages and all of those things that we should. And now we're like closing the doors and hemming ourselves in and we can't digest that. Like, like we, uh, we can't go anywhere with it. We can't hustle and grind our way out of here. We, we, Uh we can't even go like to maybe the group therapy session that we were going to or the AA meeting or um, all the things that we were doing to, to keep going, all the sports that were keeping our kids. Like sometimes I wonder, did this, did all of these different activities that we thought we were supposed to be doing actually, were they just coping mechanisms to absolve our own like pain? Anxiety. Anxiety to quell kind of that, that fear. Yeah, I mean, I think so. And I think some of us were kind of running on a hamster wheel because we felt like this is what we have to do. Like, Mm -hmm. I have to have my, you know, if my daughter is just the least bit interested in theater, then I better get her in community theater and classes. And if my kid is even the least bit interested in sports, I better get him on a club team and have him traveling. You know, we, there is that intense pressure of like, if a child shows interest in something, then we have to create them Mm. into prodigies, right? Mm. Oh, yeah. Even if they 
they don't show interest, we project an interest onto them. And then, you know, and I do think there's been a reckoning in the midst of the pandemic of like, all of us having to learn what home life Mm. feels like. And here's what I mean by that. Like, what does life feel like when we don't have places to go, right? Mm. And and what does our family look like when we have an evening that's clear? And do we know how to be mm. overdoing? Because mm. we're all really familiar with doing, mm. with going. And, and, you know, it's interesting because before the pandemic started, I was really feeling that for my own family because we were in a really busy season. And I'm like, you know, I feel like we're not learning rest. Like I'm not teaching that in my family. I'm not teaching how to just be, Mm. I'm not teaching how to, you know, how do we sit and communicate as a family when we have nothing to do and when the TV's off. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking like, man, I need a, I need a pause. Like we need a pause. And then Mm. the pandemic happened and I'm like, okay, but not like this, (laughs) right? Like not, I didn't mean this. Right. (laughs) Right. Yeah, I, I'm just sitting here. I, I'm almost breaking out in a cold sweat because <laughs> a couple of things you said have already resonated. You said that you know, let's just get to a B plus, and and Emily and I are like trying to make it to the C level. We are. Um, I don't know how it is. In, oh, I, I mean, I don't know how it is in California, but like in junior high basketball, there's A and B teams, and we're like way on the B team, and really okay with that. Oh, well, because you, totally. you're more. You listen. <laughs> We do Enneagram work, and I'm going to out myself right now. I've outed myself before, but Brett is way better at taking the B or C role than I. I'm an Enneagram one, and and so dying to perfectionism has been a slow and painful death. It's it's been oh, and it's I mean, cost me a ton of money too in therapy. <laughs> oh yeah, well I I'm an Enneagram three, so okay. I relate to that. I mean it's it is very difficult. Like this book I wrote for myself more than anything, yeah. right? Like yeah. letting go of perfection is not easy for me. I you know my personality is that I want to perform. Yeah, I want us to look good. I want the optics to be mm. good. Um, you know, I want us to be successful, and so it is a daily practice for mm. me. To and it's I haven't arrived. It's mm-hmm. a discipline mm-hmm. for me to let go of perfectionism, mm. like daily, yeah. a daily discipline. Yeah, and I love that perspective too. It, the The gift of the pandemic is that we're we're sheltered in place, in a sense. You know, together we're learning how to be together. We're learning how to see each other, like. Like just to yeah. just to look at each other and know one another because the truth of the matter yeah. is like well we're not we're we're a, we're a school family we're not like a homeschool family so I wasn't you know eight, yeah. eight, eight hours of the day my kids were gone and we were working same here you know yeah. and then my yeah. kids do you know play sports and so then there was that and it was a lot of observing but it wasn't seeing yes. each other. Yeah, I I feel that too. I mean, it was so interesting last night. My kids, we watched a TV show together and then the TV turned off and I was just, it was a night where I knew I didn't have anything early in the morning and the kids didn't. And I'm like, I'm just going to see how long they sit here. Mm. And my kids sat in the living room and talked to me for an hour and a half without the TV on. My teenagers who you know, they're not super interested in me, let's be honest, <laughs> right? You know, they're, which is developmentally appropriate. Right. They're interested in their peers. Yes. And they sat and ta- just talked. Like all we did was laugh and talk for an hour and a half until I finally said, we got to go to bed. And like, mm-hmm. that wouldn't have happened six months ago, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Now that's not to say I... You know, I never want to come off as like this whole pandemic is a gift oh, because totally, yeah. It's I know you're not either. I mean, you know, it's it's also created a lot of anxiety, it and has. you know, my kids are struggling socially. There's, I feel like we're in this new phase too, where the sheltering in place was almost easier because everyone was in the same boat. Mm. But now it's like restrictions are lifted, and mm. some families are going out and socializing, and others aren't, and it's created this really weird social dynamic of like, can I hang out with this person because I don't know where they've been or if they're going to respect my six feet, you know, rule or it's really difficult. It is. And I, let's talk about that. I'm going to go, I want to go into this a little bit because I think a lot of parents are struggling here with, um, one of the things that I feel like this pandemic has exposed is maybe our uncomfortability with, um, 
our own boundaries. Um, yeah. You know, like knowing how to determine, to self-determine for our family and then knowing how to like communicate that with our children and getting them on board. It's almost like we're, we're having to like on ramp them onto our team. Like if we were the CEO, the co-CEOs of our family, it's like, how do we onboard and on ramp our employees to fit with, to understand our vision and our culture? culture. Yeah. yeah, It's like, (laughs) man, this is tough work to try to do with teenagers and preteens, you know, um, for us. So, so how, what are some tools? Because this whole like reopening a little bit and some families doing this and that feels uh, like it's murky water. So what it is, what do you have any advice for us on, on how to do this? Well, I, you know, I, I think it's really difficult because, you know, again, developmentally, teens care more about what their peers think and what their peers are doing than their family. And so it's really tough when they are watching on Instagram or seeing that, you know, or hearing from texts that their friends are getting together, having slumber parties, like acting like there's not a pandemic. And then your family is like, oh, we're still mm-hmm. <laughs> like not doing those things. Um, that creates a lot of resentment and a lot of frustration. And at, le- at least it has for my teens. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, we've had, I've had to kind of do a little like education with them and also find outside sources that are saying the same thing I am. Because it's one thing when mom's saying it and yeah. mom's lame, right? Like, okay, mom. Yeah. So it's like, you know, finding like a YouTube channel of, you know, a, a celebrity that they admire. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, look, this celebrity's talking about how they are still mm-hmm. quarantining or mm-hmm. how they're wearing a mask. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so that... and. It, it's really just so that they're hearing outside voices because it can start to feel like it's mom, my strict mom mm-hmm. against the whole world, oh, which is yeah. not true, of course, but that's the way that they're feeling as teenagers, you know. Are your kids, I know that just in our own like learning about trauma in the brain, I, I, and I totally like have learned so much about the teenage brain about needing their pe- mm-hmm. needing their peers and like that that's so healthy to detach and you know yeah. lovingly detach in some ways um are your kids because there are so many restrictions socially are they starting to express like anxiety or I know for a lot for for my kids and then for par- other parents ours are all starting just now to kind of exhibit yeah. some sleep disorder, some um, yes. really intrusive thoughts, um, wild, yes. wild dreams. Like all of us are having weird dreams. Yep. My teenagers are having yep. bizarre, like bizarro dreams. Um, yes. And can you can you talk us? Yeah, your background as a psychotherapist. I don't even think I mentioned that when we started, but just your background in mental health. Like, what's happening right now? Yeah, I think that kids are experiencing chronic stress. And what we know about chronic stress is, you know, that it affects every system of your body. So it affects your sleep. It affects, you know, you people might find that their teenagers are having stomach aches or mm-hmm. headaches. Mm-hmm. Uh, mine are having, you know, mine, like my kids have never had headaches and my kids are having totally. headaches, you know, on the regular. Um as you mentioned, those intrusive thoughts, you know, sc- scary, irrational thoughts, mm-hmm. which I, ex- I experienced that as an adult as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just, you know, laying in bed and just thinking like, what if we all die or, you know, right. those kind of thoughts. Um, you know, so some of the practices that we've put in place, well, I will say that, you know, two of my kids are struggling more than the other two. And so I have those two in therapy. Yeah. And here's the great thing about therapy right now is like so many therapists can do it online. Yes. So, you know, my kids like, they they just I'll put it on their little phone calendar and then like they'll do it independently. They just like hop on Zoom and meet with their therapist once Love a week it. and you know it's it's actually easier than ever to get kids into therapy mm-hmm. um, because I would say almost all therapists are doing some some kind of online stuff. So I think therapy is really helpful. Um, I think you know, just really trying to talk through those fears. Mm -hmm. Um, And if people aren't familiar with like what a cog thought diary looks Mm -hmm. like, there's some really great ones for kids, which is a cognitive thought diary is really just 
a way of journaling that captures some of your most irrational fears, and then it prompts you to give yourself more realistic thoughts, Mm. right? So if I'm thinking, it's like if I'm catastrophizing, it helps me maybe narrow that catastrophe down to like, what's really realistic, Mm. right? Like, are we all going to die? Or can I use evidence to tell me, you know, that we most likely might be surviving, you know? Um, And then, you know, I've been trying to just really be mindful in our family of how much, how much news we're intaking, how much screen, you know, and it's so tough because I want to say, I am, you know, my whole message is like, good enough, mom. Mm-hmm. I know we've all let go of the screen time limits, mm-hmm. right? We're yeah. all just kind of like every man for himself, whatever. <laughs> um, but I am trying to reduce that a little bit. I'm trying to make sure that we're getting outside in nature, mm-hmm. that we're getting some exercise, that we're stepping away from the screens because there is just so much information to take in right now. And it's it's overwhelming. And this is for me too, yes. man. I mean... I'm at the top of the need for screen time limit list. Yes, totally. Very top. <laughs> I, hate, I hate that for y'all. Oh, whatever. <laughs> You're ridiculous. I hate that y'all feel the need to be on that. Glutton. I'm going to call you <laughs> yeah. out. Um, judgy over here. Um, yeah, I think the nature thing is huge. And then my oldest daughter, who's 17 now, so she'll be a senior next year. We were talking yesterday just because we were having some... Uh, just re- trying to reorient ourselves with one another. We've been just a little bit ships passing in the night, everybody kind of on their own tech. And it was like, hey, let's come together. And I said, you know, let's think of things we can do together so that, you know, we're really trying a little bit to be more intentional, especially with my siblings. I have kind of an age gap with my oldest is 17, middle is 15, and then I have a little guy who's 10. And so sometimes there's like such a chasm between like what we can all enjoy and what we can all do that's like, you know, everybody's feeling connected with. And I said, you know, like, let's think of movies. And And my oldest daughter, she goes, you know, like... Mom, we're all kind of really over family movies. Like we've all just consumed <laughs> like a whole lot and and the truth of the matter is movies and consumption is easy. And it Yes, it is. We don't have to engage. Someone else is doing the talking right. for us. And so yes. then my middle and youngest go, "Yeah, like you know how like when we would go camping and stuff, like when we used to do that, you know, like we would do like huh? card games and game night. And I was like, oh yeah, <laughs> you know, like, mm, okay, game nights, you know, because that is more efforted and it is. That's more work. It's more yeah. work. Like, and I know we're all maxed out as parents, but I do feel like, the harder, like little narrow way is just maybe even, it's not like you have to do that every night, but just, no, you know, TV's easy. Like we're all a little bit screened and TV'd out. And, you know, screens and TV, those, you know, in, in the therapeutic world, we'd call that parallel play. It's like, you're doing the same thing, but you're not really connecting, right? Like, it's, it's neutral, yes. you know, I mean, it's, it's fine. There's nothing bad about it, but it's not pushing into more connection. Totally. Um, and so, yeah, trying to find those times is hard, especially when like many of us, by the end of the day, we're just brain dead. Like we've been, you know, Ugh. dealing with our kids up in our space all day. Like there's no summer camps where I'm at. Nope. Not <laughs> at know? all. They're just here in my space and I'm still working and I'm, you know, I I still have a job to do. So by the end of the day, it is really hard. But I think like you said, it's like, it doesn't have to be every night, right? Like we can just maybe once a week figure out those times to connect. Yes. Um, I'm going to switch gears a little bit because I just want our listeners to hear from you in terms of like the one pandemic that we've just discussed at length is COVID, you know, and everything that's happening there. But the other real tangible pandemic is that, you know, we're living in a new civil rights movement. And yeah. and you are, you have been on the front lines for a long time, having two adopted black sons and then two biological white 
daughters. And you talk a lot about this. If our listeners give you a follow or your pick up her book, um, you you walk your your readers and your listeners kind of through this. But what what was kind of your um, when you adopted and you chose that route? Talk us through what it meant to confront your own whiteness. Yeah, I mean, so we adopted our, my first child is black from foster care. Um, and then I have two white biological daughters and then I have another son who's adopted from Haiti. Um, and you know, when I set out to adopt, I thought like, oh, I'm pretty anti-racist. Like, you know, that's always been a really important thing to me. Um, and I thought, I thought I knew (laughs) more than I really did, you know, which is true for all of us. I mean, we, we always have, um, a learning curve, mm-hmm. you know, especially as parents. And so, you know, I, it really did cause me to confront a lot of my own white privilege. And I want to, I know that some people might struggle with that term. And so I want to talk about what that means. And so what that meant for me is starting to understand, um, the ways in which I benefit from the world, um, based on the color of my skin and the lack of struggle I've had based on the color of my skin. And that doesn't mean I haven't had struggle. Mm-hmm. I actually grew up in a really dysfunctional family. I had to pay for my own college. I was really broke in my 20s. Like I had struggle, mm-hmm. but my struggle wasn't based in my skin color, mm-hmm. right? Like I, the, the, so I had, you know, I didn't have economic privilege but I still had white privilege. Right. Um, and what that looks like is when I was in my 20s, there was a few times I got pulled over for speeding and I got mouthy with a cop. Mm. Like just little 20-year-old, like <laughs> I'm just going to, you know, mm. I'm not going to sign this paper. I wasn't doing that. And I didn't have to be worried that I'd be pull out, pulled out of the car mm. or questioned or arrested for any of those things. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think white privilege... It can look really benign. It can look like I know that I can walk into Target and in the shampoo aisle, there will be shampoo for my hair, Mm -hmm. right? Like I don't have to go to a special section or wonder if they even have the special section. It'll be there. Or if I go and buy Band-Aids, they're going to match my skin color. Mm -hmm. And those are small little things, but still white privilege. But then there's the bigger issues, which is that I can reasonably assume if I walk into a fancy store at my local mall, I'm not going to be shadowed and followed because they're wondering where I'm at. Or I'm, you know, again, when I interact with law enforcement, I can reasonably assume that they are not suspicious of me, Mm -hmm. that they are there to protect me, which is not the experience of many black people. Um, And so, you know, I've just really had to learn that lesson over the years. And it's been very poignant because Two of my kids are the same exact age. My son, who was adopted from Haiti, and my daughter that I birthed here in the States are the exact same age. Mm. And so being able to watch them walk out into the world and just be treated so differently, Mm. and my son to be asked what he's doing somewhere, if he belongs somewhere, Mm. for me to be asked, do I know where that kid's parents are, Mm. when no one's asking me where my daughter's parents are. Mm. Just the the suspicion and the bias that I observe towards him in the world versus my daughter, it's it's very pronounced, Mm. and it's it's really sad. I listened to your uh, NPR podcast, which was fantastic, by the way. Um, and you told a story on there that I just, it's kind of haunted me. Mm. And I wonder if you could tell it again about when you had to call the cops to your house. Um, because yeah. you, there's, a, there's a detail in there that when you said it, I just had this pit in my stomach. And I thought to myself, I've never even thought about that. Mm. So would you tell that story? Yeah, yeah, sure. So I think at this point, my kids were, my my oldest son was probably 10, and my younger son was eight, and then my daughters were eight and six. And it was just one of those nights, wake up in the middle of the night, hear a crash in the backyard. I don't know what it is, and I just instinctively called the police, um, which, you know, instinctively calling the police is also, a, <laughs> you know, it's a very white thing to do. Like, right. that's what we do. Right. I need the police involved, you know? What's going on? And so, you know, and I'm tired. It's the middle of the night. They show up and they're like, okay, well, we're going to go look through your garage. So they 
enter the garage, they look through the garage, and then they come into the house and they come into the living room. And at that point, they woke up my oldest, Mm. who's 10, but at the time was taller than me, Mm. like taller than most adults. So he hears people in the house. He bolts out of bed, runs down the hallway into my room. Now, they didn't see him, fortunately, because they were in the living room. But there were three cops in my house with guns drawn. Mm. And I had failed to tell the dispatcher. And I had failed to tell the cops when they showed up at my house, hey, there's two black teenagers, or not even teenagers at the time. There's two black kids in my house. Mm -hmm. There's two, you know, like the way that my family looks may not be what you expect. Mm. And I, it was just such a moment of like, I really put my son in danger. Like that could have ended horribly Mm. if these cops are looking for an intruder and they see, you know, a a black, what looks like a black adult running down the hallway, like what could have happened. And so, you know, that was just a real lesson to me of, and it should be a lesson for all white people. Like you really have to think through when you're calling the police, could I be putting a black or brown person in danger with this phone call? Uh, Hmm. Yeah. That's a good thought. And, you know, I, I think we would all agree that not all cops are bad, but right now, no. right now, I mean, there's some shitty things happening and we can't yeah. lie about it. And we live in the South yeah. where mm. it's like, you yeah. know, the Republicans stand with the cops and the Democrats stand with the black people, mm. which I think all that's bullshit yeah. approach to this whole deal. Mm. But to even invite our white yeah. brothers and sisters to stop and think, if you do call the cops, what might the, how might this, are you going to get a good cop? Or are you going to get a bad cop? You don't mm. know which one you're going to get. And you also don't know if that situation is going to get escalated and you don't have any power to change that. Well, and I want to even suggest too that, and I agree with you and I, I'm, I am pro black lives matter and I also support police. I have relatives who are police, Mm -hmm. uh, black relatives, in fact, who are police Mm -hmm. officers. Um, you know, so I, I support both and I think it's, it's possible to do that, but I would even suggest that it's not even about bad cops. Mm. I think that most of us are walking around with racial bias mm. and it's, it's been fed to us through our media, our entire lives. It's been fed to us by watching the news and seeing mug, mug shots of black people more, more disproportionately than white people. Mm-hmm. It's been fed to us in the movies that we consume where black people have been, you know, portrayed as criminals much more. It is, it is portrayed in the music that predominantly white people consume mm. where the the you know black rappers mm-hmm. are the the stuff that sells mm-hmm. um, to white audiences yeah. is black people portraying themselves as criminal and so I think we are all steeped in this racial bias I think we all have it myself included and so you know when you call the cops it could even be a good cop it could even be a cop who thinks he's not racist mm. but in a split second decision that bias that that bias about the criminality of black bodies mm-hmm. is there. Mm-hmm. And in those split second decisions, lives are lost. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And it's not, you know, I mean, I, I definitely think there are bad cops out there who, you know, I mean, and especially in the case of George Floyd, where this wasn't a, this wasn't a split second decision no. based on bias. This was a guy who was actively right. But I mean, f- there are those cops, but then I think what, what like is predominant is good cops who have not dealt with their racial bias. Right. Right. And I think for, for us in the space that we're in as a faith based loving uh, and justice that love and justice are not opposed to one another. They are two sides of the same coin. And the truth of the matter is this work takes an amount of surrender and humility that most of us as Americans is antithetical to the way the church has operated. That's right. We have, that's right. Like we, the, the Jesus that we, that we know that I know and the Jesus that, Mm -hmm. that reformed and the Jesus that loved radically and, and and brought justice to broken systems that yeah. that Jesus like we wouldn't we probably wouldn't like him today. Yeah, that that <laughs> same guy that tore up tables no. in the 
in the tabernacle. Uh-huh. Like yeah. he did, he was destructive. Yeah. He probably would have spray yes. painted if he had spray paint. <laughs> right. So t- I think you're right. I think you're right. I think when we really look at the life of Jesus, not what we've been taught in school, not what we've been taught in in Sunday school, but the life of Jesus yeah. and the words of Jesus, he is radical. Right. He's radical. Right. He is he is that social justice warrior mm. that so many Christians actually want to mock. Like that's a new thing, you know, mm-hmm. that you know, really conservative Christians are like, "Oh, you're just a a social justice warrior." Like, I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> I hope right? I am. <laughs> I feel like I've been called to that, so yes. Right. I hope so. Yeah. So, yeah, he was radical. And part of your your background like as a, you were a pastor's kid. Am I right about that? Oh, yeah. Okay. So mm-hmm. you like kind of grew up, was it evangelical church or Catholic? What'd you grow up in? Very evangelical okay. and very conservative. So, yeah. so that's, that's a similar background to mine. So what, do you, what has that faith journey been like as you now are living in this space of, you know, um, not just your therapeutic work, but now like you are raising black children, you are involved in social justice issues. Like what had to die in order that you could fully live? Well, I think in my faith, what had to die was some of the entrenched um, and false narratives around um, what a Christian looks like politically. Mm. And, you know, because I was raised that, you know, if you were a Christian, you were a Republican full stop. Mm. And you supported that side of the ticket no matter what. And, you know, I just feel like I had to, as I really started to study the teachings of Jesus, mm. I felt like, you know, I I could see that you know, Christ was really calling us to love one another in every way, right? Mm-hmm. In every way possible. And that really shifted my political thinking. And I think it's just really important that we we are using our faith to inform our vote mm-hmm. and that we are not tying our allegiance to a political party mm-hmm. that we're not, mm-hmm. you know, we shouldn't be doing that mm-hmm. really mm-hmm. at all. Right. We, our allegiance should be to our faith first, mm-hmm. and then that should inform our vote. Mm-hmm. And, um, and our voting should always be on the side of the oppressed and the marginalized yeah. always, yeah. because that's what Jesus was for. So I'm curious, um, cause it's kind of a big thing down here in the South. Um, a lot, a lot of folks are finding their kind of their diehard voice, particularly uh, evangelical Christians, and they're going to base their voice on pro-life. Mm. Mm. You know, it's like yes. we can we can excuse old Donald Trump's antics and racism, all you know, yeah. v- all, all his things, grabbing this and mm. doing that. You can just dismiss all that because he's quote quote pro-life. So what do you yeah, what, right, how, right. speak to that? I want to hear your thoughts, some uh, Californians' thoughts on <laughs> identity is, politics. If pro life is your only reason to vote Republican, how do you how do you hold up to that? Yeah, and I want to say that I I understand and empathize with that viewpoint because I held that viewpoint for a long time in my life. Um, but I think I came to a point of understanding that pro-life is so much bigger mm-hmm. than the abortion issue. Yeah. It's so much bigger. Yes. And I I want to see re- abortions reduced. But I also understand that the way that we reduce abortions, and this is statistically shown to be true, is that we offer more health care and education services for young mm-hmm. women, right? I mean, the way that we reduce abortion is that we make sure that girls are educated on sex ed, make sure that they have access to birth control. Because we're, you know, if we want to be pro-life, we can't be then in the business of, but then not in, not equipping everyone because we, you know, God forbid, don't want anyone to be sexually active in a way that's outside of our own morality. Mm-hmm. Like if 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 making sure that abortions are reduced is the end game, we need to get birth control into the hands of <laughs> Kids that are going to have sex, right? Yeah, because um, they're going to do it. <laughs> which feels like they're going to do it. I, you know, I mean, we can, we can, 
we can give our own kids, uh, you know, our own sense of morality around sex, mm-hmm. and then they're going to do also what they're going to yeah. do. Um, but, you know, in terms of dealing with the general public and politics, uh, but then I also feel outside of the abortion issue, that pro-life has to be a that has to be a pre-birth to death yep. philosophy. Yes. Yep. And when we look even at our president right now, Donald Trump, here's the ways that I don't see him as being pro-life. First of all, I think his approach to COVID has been incredibly not pro-life. Mm. Uh, I think that he has, I I think that he has really put the economy ahead of the lives of our elderly mm. in our country. Mm-hmm. Um you know, he's trying to reduce testing. He, he's he been vocal about reducing testing. So I don't think he's pro-life in that area. I don't think he has been pro-life um, in regards to immigrants. Mm. And we've had kids dying yes. in our immigration shelters yeah. uh, because they're being kept in inhumane conditions. Mm. Um, I, you know, I just, there's, there's so much more to me um, in, in my fight for being pro-life than the abortion issue. Mm -hmm. And if we really take, take a step back, I just, I I don't know. I I don't feel that Donald Trump is truly pro-life. I I, I mean, I actually don't even know that he's pro-life in terms of abortion, to be honest. I think think there's that conflicting. I I, I wonder, maybe, maybe even the broader issue is for my, more conservative friends is why are we so afraid to even step back and evaluate that? It's like, we're even scared to consider what does pro-life mean? Right. You know, it's not just being anti-abortion, right? Like, right. It's, it's it's birth to death that you're pro for. Yeah. Yeah. Really trying to understand. I mean, that impacts, like you said, immigration, it impacts prison reform. It impacts the death penalty. Yes. um, All of that. And, and there are, there's a, anyway, there's a whole movement on, you know, even the work that Shane Claiborne has been um, doing Mm -hmm. with Red Letter Christians just to really help engage with, with what his understanding and of of scripture and pro-life actually means. I think for us, um, you know, serving women who've been impacted by commercial sex and exploitation and human trafficking victims. Um, I think that when, when I look at Jesus being like incarnate, like Emmanuel with us, we had a situation just two weeks ago where a woman who was a human trafficking victim who was impregnated by her trafficker who had just beat her and came up positive pregnancy test with twins twins and wow the the grief that she bore and the conversation that we had was heartbreaking like and yeah. it it confronts in me every single every single thing that like is going on in my head with oh you know well how do we do this or how do we do that or or how do I you know contact um, you know the the adoption center to do this and what does she want to do here and really what it comes down to for me is the love of Christ compels me to be with her no matter where she determines she goes yeah. and the tragedy that's right the tragedy that she has to choose like. Like, can we just acknowledge that human trafficking and poverty, systemic poverty, yes. led this yes. woman to this place? And yeah. that is the grief. And it's not even then for me a question. It's like, wherever you go, I will go. Where do you, where do you need mm-hmm. the love right now? Where do, where do you need this? And it was just this... Um, for for me, it was just this reminder of the the very incarnate presence of God. No matter where this woman chooses, you know, we we used to think like sixteen yeah. years ago that we were bringing Jesus into strip clubs. I mean, that was the the silliness uh-huh. of the evangelical like upbringing of like uh-huh. oh, somehow yeah. like we were bringing light into into this darkness, and then to get there and realize like oh. Oh, he's already here. Oh, like oh, you're God's, here. God's yeah. at work. Like no matter where we go, yeah. we can see the fingerprint of God in every human face. And 
Um, anyway, that, yeah. So what I hear you saying is Jesus at the abortion clinic isn't on the outside of the clinic. He's oh, actually he's in, in it. it. Oh, it's, it's so hard for so many of us to reconcile that because, because if he's not, then he wasn't with you when mm. you were at your worst. Because yeah. if he's not... If, if, oh, dang, yeah. girl. Yeah. Say that again for the with, people in the back. <laughs> Y'all can rewind that. Um, yeah, it, it, is, it is a tough, multiple, multiple pandemics that we're navigating, multiple crises that we're you know, facing as parents. Um, Kristen, as we wrap up this kind of segment, this is going to be like a hard hard turn right here that I'm about to do. Are you ready? Because <laughs> we were like way in the deep end. And so the hard turn I'm going to do, I did a little homework and and learned that you like show tunes. Oh, I sure do. Okay. So first of all, did you hear Hamilton is going to be streaming on Disney Plus July 3rd? Do I have it in my Google calendar? Okay. Yes, I do. Okay, I was just making sure. <laughs> I do too. I was just making sure that I, I should expect that if you love show tunes. What, so what's your favorite Broadway show? Ooh, okay. That's a hard like picking one. A baby. Um, it is like choosing yeah. a child. Um, I really love, um, little shop of horrors. That's just an old even game for me. And is it the songs that you like or do you, or the, the oh, zany? I love, love I love the songs I love the setup yeah. I mean it's like these three doo-wop so girls great. that kind of serve as a Greek chorus um yeah I love I you know I think that's my favorite one to listen to I don't know that that's my favorite one to watch okay but song wise your um, show tune love you would say that's yes. got to be the soundtrack that's the soundtrack show wise I really love next to normal okay, I don't which know is that. a very dark. Yeah, it's dark. It's um, it's about mental illness. Mm. I mean, it's you, you leave that one like it's a musical, but you leave it kind of feeling like you just got beat up emotionally. Mm. Um, but I really love that show too. Okay. Um, well, we kind of our two mantras on in our work and in our community of survivors here is we talk about awakening hope and we talk about empowering change. So my last two questions the 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 next one is. What hope do you see being awakened right now in your life? Yeah. You know, I see an entire nation catching up with a race conversation that my family has wanted us to have for a long Mm -hmm. time. And so I feel hopeful that I'm watching a new generation being engaged in the conversation around racial justice. And I'm watching my kids' friends who never engaged on this topic, making posters Mm -hmm. and showing up at protests and posting things about Breonna Taylor. I see... I really do see the younger generation taking up the cause of racial justice, and it does give me a lot of hope. Mm. That's good. And it's so good to to really, in a sense, season that can feel so heavy, but to reframe it and see it as hope. You know, it's scary for a yeah. lot of us right now, but I think if we can look at this as hopeful, it's exciting. Yeah. I think it is. I think it is. It's like, you know, I'm no longer having to explain mm. to people, which I had to do for years, like... What does white privilege mean? Yeah. And what, you know, what, how are my kids treated differently? Like people are getting it finally. Um, what ways are you currently empowering change? Hmm. You know, it's, it's interesting because I wrote, my book is really more of a parenting humor memoir. Mm. You know, it's, it's, it's mm-hmm. funny, hopefully. Mm-hmm. I mean, pe- <laughs> people have said, um, you know, and, and as I was writing it, I was really struggling with, like, I want to talk about race in this book, and I want to talk about white privilege in this book, but I don't know if it fits. And there were a lot of conversations, you know, with my publisher and my editor of, like, is, is this the right fit? And I, I really felt like I can't, I don't feel comfortable writing a book without talking about this mm-hmm. stuff. Like, if I have an opportunity, yeah. I need to talk right. about it. And I'm so grateful that I stuck to my guns and I left some chapters about that in the book um, because I feel like that is that is how I am 
you know, talking about these things with other people who, you know, maybe they wouldn't have picked up a book called, you yes. know, <laughs> how to not be racist or how to confront your white privilege. <laughs> but they pick, they pick up a, you know, what seems like a funny mom book and then surprise, yeah. here I am. We're going to talk about <laughs> racial justice in the middle of this book. But you know, it's, um, it, so oh, didn't mean to cut you off. Well, yeah, I think that that is always how I have tried to engage is to, you know, bring people in by being relatable and talking about things that, you know, whether it's talking about like funny parts of parenting or recapping the last Bachelor, you know, (laughs) episode. But it's like inviting people in on ways that we relate and then saying, okay, and now let's talk about some harder things. And so... You know, I'm I'm glad that I did that in the book, and and I'm hopeful that that carries that message, you know, further than maybe it would have been carried. Well, it is an empowering thing to listen to authentic voices because it it is it does empower even me as as we have this conversation to be okay in my own space in my own way to have my own voice and my own view and yeah. to relinquish a lot of that fear and perfectionism and optical kind of perception of, of you know what we look like and how we're doing and how our kids are doing. And so I, yes, writing a book, are you kidding? That is empowering change big time. You are definitely, definitely doing that and in, in using and lending your authentic voice. Um, where can people, how do people connect with you? Where do we order the book? What do we need to know about? Just give us all the things. Yeah, the book is available, I mean, pretty much anywhere you buy books, Amazon, Target. Um, if you want an indie bookstore, you can go to kristenhowerton.com, and there is a link to my book on IndieBound, which would take you to a local indie bookstore for yourself. And then I'm on Instagram and Facebook at Kristen Howerton. And then my kind of parenting humor accounts are at Rage Against the Minivan. I love it. We are so thankful for your just contribution on this podcast and the freedom really that you give us to think differently, to own our authentic lane and to hopefully get through this pandemic with a few more tools. Yes. Thank you for being with us today. Fan, this is, I feel like, we, I feel like we could keep going another hour, but I know just good, know. good stuff. <laughs> so thank you. I feel like we could have talked to her for hours. We could have. And I know some of our listeners, um, you know, are, wrestling with so much right now, like life is requiring that we think very deeply at this point in our lives about everything that we think about race, about politics, about positions that we've held that, um, and I think the beautiful gift in this is that I love that we are learning to hopefully listen, mm-hmm. just listen, yeah. listen to voices that may be different than your own. It doesn't mean you have to agree with them. It just means that we learn to hear one another. And even if you disagree with them, it doesn't mean that that they're bad people. Or that their voice doesn't matter. Right. All of our voices matter. It, it This is, I, I'm telling you, if I think back over my few 44 years on this planet I've lived, I've held a lot of different positions. Right. I mean, when I was in seventh grade, Mr. Shriver's class, <laughs> and I was determined I was going to be the president of the United States, okay. I signed my name. You know, in the upper corner that you had to do on the notebook paper, Brett Mills, parentheses, capital R, in parentheses. And Mr. Shriver was a libertarian, and he would always sign the papers back to me, Mr. Shriver, parentheses, big L. Oh, so you were interested in politics way back then. Oh, yes. Like, I loved seeing the R next to my name. Like, it felt so right. Interesting. Well, it's just what you were raised in, right? Yeah, yeah, but you know, to know that I've you know put my, some of my positions have changed. I don't know that I would want an R by my name, but I sure know that I don't want a D by it either. So, <laughs> I think the reality is that all of these that Jesus doesn't fit in a political party. That is so true. He does not fit in a political party, and yet we carry Jesus with us into every vote. Yes. So the question for all of us is. How do we carry Jesus in this world? And what are the ways that Jesus himself um, reveals to us who he is and how we today navigate this crazy, crazy world? So, 
My challenge to you is to go slide into the DMs of some more people with blue check marks. Okay, I'll do my best. And let's see who we, else we can, <laughs> let's see who else we can get on this podcast, Dan. It's fun conversations. It's fun to converse with people with blue check marks. They, it sure you know, is. they're verified not just by Instagram, but they've actually done a whole lot of good things they've and done a lot something. of good work. They produce something that people buy. <laughs> they've actually thought about it yeah. a lot. Of, you got to think a lot before you get to that blue check mark. No matter Let's where you do live. it. Let's, Let's go do get it. them. All right, y'all. Share the love. Hey, thanks for joining the Jesus Said Love podcast. We are so glad you have chosen to awaken hope and empower change with us. We want to remind you to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and leave us a review. Yes. Because your voice matters. It's how we get this message into the world. And lastly, be sure to follow Jesus Said Love on Instagram and Facebook for up-to-date info. And visit the website at JesusSaidLove.com for how you can join the JSL fam. Until next time. Share the love.